0: Well, good morning again, everybody. Uh, it's lovely to be down in Carrick with you again, and it's nice that the Lord has blessed it with good weather while I'm at the seaside as well, which is great. Um, so if, we, uh, if you want to turn with me this morning, we're turning to John chapter 2, and we're going to deal with the first 11 verses. So, John chapter 2, and starting to read verse 1. Let's hear what the word of God has to say. Johnny writes, and he says, On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding, and when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, "'Whatever he says to you, do it.' Now there were, there, there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing twenty or thirty gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, "'Fill the water pots with water,' and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, "'Draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast,' and they took it.' In Him. Amen. And we trust the Lord will bless the reading of His Word. Let's just pray before we come to look at it. Father, if we were to do nothing else this morning than to read your holy Word, then surely praise for you and your greatness would rise within us. But today we have been given the privilege not only to be able to read your Word, but to be able to study it together. And Lord, we pray that now as we come to do that and as we come to look deeper into it, that by your Holy Spirit you will guide us and you will uh, empower us, Father, and you will give us direction for the days that lie ahead and the week that lies ahead in your will. So speak to us now using the power of your Holy Spirit through the word that you have given to us in Christ's name. Amen. John's gospel, I don't know whether you've ever looked at it or not, but John's gospel has been written with a very specific purpose in mind. And as John has written the gospel, and as you read through it, you discover very quickly that that gospel breaks down into four very significant parts. The first part is chapter 1. Chapter 1 contains from John the, the Apostle all verbal testimony about the fact that Jesus, this Jesus that we believe in, is the creator God himself. But yet at the same time, this Jesus also stands distinct from God. Being God, but yet being with God. He goes on and he tells us that Jesus is the light, Jesus is the life. And Jesus is the word who gave up his place and all the glory that he had in heaven to become flesh and to dwell amongst us. And he says, we beheld his glory. Chapter 1, also to back all of that up, it gives other testimonies from, from people such as John the Baptist and, and then from Jesus' own disciples, his first disciples, Andrew, Peter, John, Philip, and Nathaniel. The second section of the book, it starts in chapter 2 where we have started to read this morning and it runs from chapter 2 through to chapter 12. And, and those chapters, they contain the public ministry of Christ as he, as he walked amongst the people, as he walked through the land of Canaan and Galilee. And it gives us insight into that ministry, both in the works of Jesus that he did, and also in the words that he spoke and taught to the people around him who came to, to listen to. Section 3 is from chapter 13 through to verse, or chapter 17. And those chapters, they deal with the very private ministry of Jesus, very specifically to his apostles, and, and even more specifically in the upper room, just before they have the final meal there, and then they go out to the Garden of Gethsemane. For Christ then is turned over uh, to the authorities and and his life is eventually taken from him on that cross at Calvary. And then chapters 18 to 21 that's what they deal with themselves because John tells us all about Christ's death about his resurrection and then about his post-resurrection appearances but as I say this book has been written with a very specific purpose in mind and the purpose is really summed up for us in one verse and that is in chapter 20 and verse 20 to 31 where John he writes and he says these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God and that believing you may have life in his name. Now, I'll be honest, uh, what do you call this? Sorry, I forgot your name. John. John. John asked me a few questions here this morning. If he would asked me who my favorite author in the Bible is, my favorite author in the Bible is actually John himself. John is my favorite biblical writer. And I think that's because John is one of those people who had the privilege of walking every day along the, or through this earth with Jesus Christ beside him. He's seen him firsthand. He, he listened to him firsthand. But then before he writes his gospel, he has the opportunity just to step back and think of through and, and think of what he wants to write under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he becomes a, a writer who is very specific in what he writes. He writes with this purpose in mind that we might believe. So he only takes the little bits and the snippets that he wants that will prove that Jesus Christ is the Messiah come to this world, that he is the Son of God. He is the Savior who would come to give us life for the people of this world. And that's John's whole idea within this. And that's why he's so specific in what he writes. And, and John, he even sums up how specific he is because at the end of the book he says there are many other things that Jesus did which if they were written one by one even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written and so as we come here today to look at this scene of this first miracle not only is this first miracle very significant in what it portrays to us as Christians today but as we look at John and we think of how specific John is, everything he writes, he writes with a purpose. And as we come into this thing, the first thing we see is this statement that John writes here as we enter chapter 2, on the third day. Now, so often when we're reading, we just, we just skim over that, and we move on to the whole, the whole miracle that happened here in, in Cana of Galilee. But that statement alone, on the third day, in the specific way that John writes, it is there for a purpose. For one thing, it gives us the timescales in which this happened. This is the third day after John the Baptist had had his run-in with the Pharisees. When John the Baptist, he had stood in front and he says, There stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me. Whose sandal straps I am not worthy to loose. So we're three days after that event. We're three days after the introduction of Jesus Christ into this world and into his, his ministry. But at the same time, this statement, it points us beyond that. Because this statement points us right on through to the finished work of Christ. When what happened? When on the third day, he rose. That was the point where we know that Christ's ministry has now been completed. He has become the Messiah. He has become the Savior. He has given his life. He has shed his blood on our behalf. And as Stedman states, this is a miracle of transformation, a miracle which symbolizes bringing life out of death. As I've already said, this first miracle, it stands as a portrayal of the future ministry of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. So what can we learn from this ministry today? What can we learn from this passage today? Well, the first thing we learn is quite simple. It shows Jesus' care for others in verses 1 to 4. In the nation of Israel, you see, a wedding was a massively significant event in the lives of those who were involved in it. Probably today we would still argue that that is the case. But in the days that Jesus was on the earth, it was very different because it was different from today's society. Because today the whole focus of a wedding is on the bride. It's all about how well the bride looks. It's all about the bride and what she has and, and everything about her. I remember our own wedding and I remember every, every person that spoke to me that day says, isn't Wilma looking well? Don't you think she's looking so well? So I agreed, being the man that I was. We went back to the hotel room after the meal and I says, well, answer me a question. I says, did anybody mention how well I looked today? <laughs> no. So it's all about the bride in today's world, but in those days it wasn't. Now, let me me just read you a a little extract about, about a Jewish wedding as it would have happened in those days. It says there, The wedding marked the culmination of the betrothal period. During that period, which often lasted for several months, the couple was considered legally man and wife, and only a divorce could terminate the betrothal. They did not, however, live together or consummate the marriage during that period. On the night of the ceremony, usually a Wednesday, the groom and his friends would go to the bride's house. They would then escort her and her attendants to the groom's house where the ceremony and banquet would be held. The whole celebration ended with the actual wedding. Now, contained in the middle of all of that, and the timescales, and those months of betrothal, there was a lot of important things happened. And one of the things that was there was the, whole, uh, the, the groom showing his ability to be able to look after his new wife and to be able to care for his new wife. See, the ceremony didn't just last for a day the way we have now. But during that betrothal period, the groom would be busy making preparations for his wife. If he was a man of, of financi- or financially well-off man, well then he would probably go and build a house for him and his wife. If he wasn't so well-off, what would actually happen is he would, he would link another room onto his own parents' house, which would then become the place where him and his wife would set up home and start their family. But after those preparations had been completed, it was all about the ceremony. It was all about this feast of celebration that we're reading about here in this passage. It was a feast that would last for somewhere between three and seven days. And that feast, it was, it was all about the groom being able to show to the community that one, he was ready to be a husband. But secondly, that he was able to, to support his wife and hopefully in the future, his family. So what happens here in this wedding this is an absolute catastrophe. Nothing worse could have happened because this was showing, if this got out into public, this would show that this groom hadn't the ability to foreplan and hadn't the ability to care for, in the long term, his wife. That's how this situation would be read in the community in which they lived. Actually, it would go as far as to the point where if the bride's father heard about it, or the bride's family would get to know about it, there would be so much humiliation that the bride's family could actually open up a lawsuit against the the groom. And the groom's family could spend the rest of their lives actually paying for the failure of that day and not being able, or those few days, not being able to care for the wife that had been betrothed to him. So that's the situation. That's the the depth of the issue of the situation that Christ finds himself in or being drawn into. And the turmoil that lies behind everything. When Mary, she comes and it seems so simple for her to say it. But there there was a massive confusion going on here at this stage in the background. When Mary just comes and she says to Jesus, they have no wine. There's an awful lot lies behind that statement. Now, some people have suggested that that Jesus' response to Mary is disrespectful in regards to the son-mother relationship. But by his actions, other commentators, they conclude that we see Christ did not refuse to act on her request. So he wasn't being discourteous to his mother. He acted on what she asked him to do. But in the terminology that she uses, it signifies a change in the relationship between mother and son. See, Jesus was Mary's son. But Mary knew from the point of her conception by the Holy Spirit that their relationship would not always be a normal mother-son relationship. There was something different about this child that she had. Every so often, things had happened as Jesus had grown up. And as Mary had marked these in her thoughts, we see Luke recording and saying that, well, Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. She knew there was coming a day when the relationship would change. This statement then, where Jesus addresses Mary as woman, this is the point where this change in relationship, where it comes to to fruition, where it changes. Because no longer would Mary relate to Jesus as her son. But as his public ministry now begins, instead of being her son, Jesus is now about to take on the place of being her Messiah, of being her Savior. That's a wonderful change in relationship from being a son to being a saviour. From being a blood-bought relative, if you like, as Mary was to Jesus, to actually being a blood-bought child of God as Mary becomes. So Jesus didn't ignore his mother or, or walk away from her request. Neither did he ignore the situation of the others involved in the wedding feast. But, but by his actions, he shows that his love and his concern for all the people around him. Not as an ordinary guest at the wedding who says, Here, there's a few hundred pounds. Go and buy some more wine. He doesn't show it in that way. But he shows his love and his concern by quite simply acting as the invited Savior into this wedding. Into this, this miracle of transformation. And in both his words and actions, we see that this is his ministry, or we see that in his ministry as Savior, Jesus has a care and concern for all who will call upon him. We need to take comfort from that this morning. Have we we concerns? Have we cares? Yes, we do. We all have at some stage in our life. We need to be able to call upon Christ. We need to have confidence that we call upon him. He is the one who, who can perform that miracle of transformation in our lives. He's the one who can give us strength and help us through those things because he cares. But that leads us and brings us into our next point. Because in the next few verses, we see our need of obedience to the word. You see, back in chapter 1 and verse 14, John says, The Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And Jesus then, in His Word, is full full of grace and truth. In, In grace, He has a care for all the people of His creation. And in truth, we must obey all that He requires of us. And what we find here is the outworking of this in this miracle you see Mary has come and she has spoken with Jesus and I assume that there's a whole lot more goes on in that conversation than what John records John doesn't share it all with us but now after this initial conversation she's quite simply she turns to the servants and her instruction is very clear to them whatever he says just do it whatever he says you do it now don't miss what I have said this is an instruction from Mary. This is not a command of Mary. This is an actual instruction from her. This was a family wedding. And the word that's used here for servants is the word diaconus. We get our word deacon from it. It's the word of somebody who is serving willingly amongst the people. In, other, in other, of, or other places in the scripture where we read of a servant, the word that is used is doulos. And it means Slave. Someone who has been hired, someone who has been bought, someone who just quite simply does, as they have been told, they must obey because they are under the authority of the master who owns them. But the word diaconus that's used here, it infers that these people who were there as servants, they were there willingly to help out at this wedding, and they were there because of their own free will. They wanted to do this work. So as Jesus gives them instruction, they actually do have an option. These guys could have looked at this and went, here, guys, there's no wine left. Let's get out of here before we get blamed for this. They could have lifted and they could have run and got away. But as we read on through this story, we discover that their choice is not to run away, but their choice is to obey. And Jesus said, fill the water pots with water. What did they do? They filled them to the brim. Now, if we were here today and we were dealing with Roman Catholic theology, we would actually discover that the emphasis is more on Mary's conversation with Jesus than on her words, or conversation with Jesus and her words with him, than on the actual command and the work of Jesus himself. Because by my understanding and my reading, if I'm understanding it correct, Roman Catholic Church uses this passage as a basis for their belief in praying to Christ through Mary. They believe that in this passage, Mary is the one who is interceding for the bridal party. But as they, if they, there's things they're missing in this because they're missing two very important points. And that is the fact that firstly it is not recorded that the groom or bride came to Mary asking her to speak to Jesus on their behalf. But secondly and most importantly her message to the people around her had nothing to do with her actions. But instead she says do whatever he, do whatever Jesus tells you to do. And that is the thing that we major on as Christians. Not Mary's conversation with Jesus, but the instructions of Jesus himself, which must be obeyed. Mary just acted the same as John the Baptist did. Mary pointed people to Christ. Then she stepped back out of the road. Then she said, listen to him. Do what he tells you. Yes, I may be the, point, uh, I may be the one who's pointing you to Christ. But I'm not the one who's telling you what to do. I'm not the one who will change your life. And as I have said earlier, this is a miracle of transformation. In it, through the instructions of Jesus, water is turned into wine. But through his ministry, there's an even more important ministry of transformation or miracle of transformation that so often takes place. And that comes as we, we, we obey the, the instruction of Jesus that we should not or that we must believe. What we have in our lives is not a transformation of water into wine, but instead it is a transformation of a broken relationship with God being mended through the finished work of Christ. And like the servants, like the servants, we have the option to either obey or to walk away. We know the gospel message. Paul sums up the gospel message when he stands in front of Agrippa in Acts chapter 26. And in verse 20 he says, I declare first to those in Damascus and Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God and do works befitting of repentance. The first part of the transformation, the miracle of transformation that can happen in our lives is that Christ Christ wants us to repent. He wants us to turn away from the sin that dogs our lives. He wants us to turn away from that sin and to turn to God. But then there's also a second part of that transformation. That second part comes from within us. Because Paul, he says to Agrippa, do works befitting repentance. It's what we term as sanctification. Sanctification. You see, we must, as we, as we come to Christ, as we give our lives over in repentance to God, then we must live changed lives. Lives that are befitting to the work that has been completed in us by the work of God's Holy Spirit as he dwells within us. As every day he deals with us and he changes us and he, he, he works to make us more Christ-like in, in the things that we do and the things that we say and in the things that we think. And we get our head around that, then we, we start to understand this miracle of transformation that's going on in our lives. Not then, in turn, it brings us, as we think of this miracle of transformation, it brings us to verses 9 to 11, because these verses show the perfection of Jesus' work. See, that's the next stage in this story, because Jesus has told the servants to fill the water pots. Then he has told them to, to draw out from them and, and take what, whatever comes out of those water pots to the master of the feast. The master of the feast is the person who would have tasted the wine before it would have been given to, to any of the other guests. So he says, draw the water out, take it to him, let him taste the water before you hand it out around the rest of the party. Now I'm sure these servants, they were petrified as they, as they were doing this because if this all went wrong, their heads were the first on the block. They were going to take the wrath of the master first. And I'm sure that they went with fear and trepidation as they were walking up with, with what they knew was quite simply water that had been been poured into pots and had now been drawn out with a ladle and put into a glass. What would happen if the master of the feast, if he realized this was water? And we we'll get blamed for trying to dupe him and, and trying to make things look better than they are. But if they were worried, imagine how the groom felt. Here's the pots, they're empty, they're filled with water, they're drawn out, the water's put into a glass. They take it up to the master of the feast and you're watching carefully. The master of the feast takes one sip and he says, here, you, I want to talk to you a minute. You're the groom and I want to speak to you. I'm sure he was walking up to the master of the feast with every thought in his head going, how do I rationalize this? How how do I find an excuse for this? And then all of a sudden, the master of the feast, he looks at me and says, you have kept the best wine the last. That's not the normal thing to do. You've kept the best wine to the last. You're proving not just that you can look after your wife, but how well you can look after your wife because the first is not the important, but the end is what you're aiming for. And I'm sure he just stood there speechless in front of them. That's what I would have done. But what we are seeing worked out is the perfect work of Jesus Christ. Everything about this miracle had been done with a a quiet, simple dignity. And every request that Jesus had made had been met. Jesus gave simple commands, and the servants carried those commands out. Simple actions, but with a perfect result. And that parallels with the work of transformation that happens in each and every one of us as Christians. You see, as Christ has given his place in our lives, then we are filled with his Holy Spirit. And by his Holy Spirit, we are brought into this new relationship with God. That work... Just like the wine that was uh, produced is perfect, it's perfect because we are now in Christ. In John chapter 10, verses 27 to 29, Christ himself, he says about Christians, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand we have reconciliation with God to start with that's where repentance comes into it but then we have the sanctification that is our ongoing life but this is all about the reconciliation this is all about the first step this is all about the miracle of transformation that takes place in our lives when we give our life to the Lord Jesus Christ because in Christ we are safe we are saved and we are saved eternally When Paul, he writes to the Philippians about the work of Christ that has happened in their lives, he says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. You see, our salvation and the security of that salvation, thank God, and I say that reverently, thank God it is not based on our ability. It is based on the finished work of Christ himself. It is based on the power of God to perform and complete in us his saving work. We don't need to add to it because we are complete in Christ. We are secure in Christ. And you see in the cross when, when Christ uttered that final cry of it is finished. He didn't just do it because of oh, a few of a few breaths left in me. He meant it when he said it. The work of salvation and the way of salvation were complete. And we have to be careful, especially in today's world, that, that we don't decide where so many churches are teaching about it. It's about us. And it's about the things that we do and the things that we have to do. Well, we don't do anything in our salvation. It is all about Christ. And we have to be certain that we are not adding anything into that because there's nothing that we have within us that can add anything to it. Christ gave his life. Christ paid the price for my sin and for your sin and he calls us to himself. He saves us by his grace and he keeps us by his power and we have nothing to do with that. Just like the transformation of the ordinary water into the perfect wine was completed by Christ, so it is in our salvation. We are also complete in Christ. Christ. Our sinfulness is replaced with Christ's righteousness. And we are made acceptable because of that before God, and only because of that. That is the greatest transformation that can happen. I've been in churches where people have said to me, I don't believe in miracles. Well, I'm sorry, I do. Because I challenge anybody today to explain to me how the work of salvation is possible outside of a miracle. The miracle of, of us repenting of our sin and the, of the Holy Spirit coming to live within us. Outside of the miracle of the finished work, the perfect work of Christ being what makes us right before God. That's a miracle. It can only be a miracle because it's nothing of us. But as we conclude this, I want to draw your attention to one more thing about this passage. You might already have noticed it. Today... Many theologians, many of the commentators, they call this a miracle. But the whole way through John's gospel, John never uses the word miracle. He only ever refers to them as signs. Why? Why does he call it a sign and not a miracle? Well, personally, I believe it's because by terming it as a sign, he's signifying that this was a miracle with profound meaning intended to convey truth that would not otherwise be known. Each sign is designed, as I say, John has a purpose. And and as he writes these signs, each sign is designed to reveal who Jesus really was. They were the unmistakable works of God through Christ. But even signs, miracles, and wonders, believe it or not, they do not convince people to believe in Christ or to believe the gospel message. There's no record as we read down through this that the servants ever put their faith in Christ. Even with all the knowledge they had of the water going into the pots and coming out as wine, it's never recorded that they believed. See, nothing like this had ever happened in Israel since Elijah and Elisha's time, when the flour and the or when God created flour and oil in First Kings seventeen and Two Kings four. For us, the obvious deduction, as we read through Scripture, is that, is that Jesus was the Messiah. He was sent from heaven. But everybody at that point in that, in that room, in that wedding, they missed that point. Isn't that a tragedy? That they missed that, that, that this is the Messiah who's standing amongst us. Well, here's another tragedy. The tragedy is that so many people sit in our churches today and they also miss that point. Not just the fact that there was a wedding, but that, but that wedding and, and all that happened at that wedding, it's backed up with all the rest of the word of God that we have. They read it day in, day out, but they still miss the point. They don't see where, where, where it's all leading to. See, not only do we see a sign here, but we have behind that the entirety of the word of God to help us believe that we, what we see in that sign. You see, there were three groups of people who left that wedding that day. There were those who knew nothing about what had taken place. They were guests at the wedding. They had been there. The the party was ongoing. They didn't even know they'd run out of wine. Quite simply, there was more wine just kept coming. They knew nothing about what was happening that day. You can't claim to be in that group because you've sat in church. You've sat under the word of God. You know you have a need of salvation. So, you don't count in that group. So, that leaves two groups which you can be a part of, either one of those two groups. The second group is those who had done all the work, but they're never recorded that they believed. And in our churches, we have a whole lot of those people as well. They read the Word of God, they like the Word of God. Why? Because they like the clean living, they like the clean side of life. They don't drink, they don't swear, they like being honest. They do what it says in the word of God. They do their best to live by the rules of the word of God. But they never get to the point where they believe. And that's the third group. The third group are those who believed. Because if you look at verse 11, it says, This is the beginning of the signs Jesus did in Cain of Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. His disciples believed in him. That's group three. His disciples believed in him. My question to you this morning is quite simply, this is a miracle of transformation that we've listened to and heard all about. But the important part this morning is this transformation part. Have you been transformed? Not do you do a whole lot of work in the church. Not do you read your Bible every day. Not do you call yourself a Baptist. But do you know the power of transformation in your life? Have you come to that point where you believe, where you have repented of your uh, sins and you have trusted Christ as your Savior. I pray today, as do the elders in many of this church, I was in the prayer meeting up above there before we come in, I pray that you do know and believe that Jesus is the Christ and that he is your Messiah. Let's pray as the band comes up. Father, we want to thank you today for your word. We want to thank you for the fact that in it we hear of Christ and we hear of all that is done for us. We realize there was that day when sin entered into the world through Adam, but yet, Lord, there was also that day when the second Adam came, when his life was given for us on that cross at Calvary, and how we pray today that we might know and we might believe and that we might be truly the children of God. Hear our cry, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.